0: Uh, This morning, we're going to begin just a short series today and next Lord's Day until Dr. Street and I have an opportunity to begin our series on the Psalms. And I'm very excited about that series on the Psalms. I think it's going to be a wonderful and beautiful exposition of the songs of Scripture, if you will. And so it's going to be wonderful and it's going to give glory uh, to God and it's going to give us a lot of encouragement, I think, as a fellowship group. But until that time, For today and next Lord's Day, I thought it might help us to take a moment to look at one of the most vital topics in all of Scripture, that being the doctrine of repentance. The doctrine of repentance. Why repentance, you may ask? Well, because the doctrine of repentance is essential in every single aspect of understanding the Christian life from the very beginning. The repentance that God grants you to, to His chosen, to the ongoing repentance that marks the life of a believer. So the idea of repentance is obviously essential and imperative for everyone who loves Christ and who longs to honor him. And misunderstanding the doctrine of repentance is one of the most, if not the most, grave dangers imaginable to those who are in the church. And I say that because that's what Jesus himself illustrated for us. Uh, just by way of illustration, open your Bibles to Matthew 7. That's not where we're going to go eventually, but I want to start there. Matthew chapter 7 as we look at Jesus giving to us a picture of the most terrifying aspect in his sermon on the mount, and it's this portion of scripture that we see starting in Matthew 7:21. Uh, let me read it for you as you're finding that place and listen to the words of the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now what we see here in this section of scripture is a group of individuals in this imaginary account of our Lord who have died, who are standing before the Lord in this time period, and all of them believe they believe. All of them believe that they believe, and notice they call Jesus Lord. They call him Master, They believe Jesus is the master, and they believe that their lives reflect that belief according to their religious works. They were prophesying in the name of Christ. They were able to, uh, at least they thought they could, cast out demons. They could perform many miracles according to their own assessment. All religious supernatural works. And so they say Jesus is Lord. They say that they can perform many amazing feats. But notice their personal assessment of themselves doesn't square with Jesus' assessment of them at all. I never knew you. I never knew you. As God, he doesn't mean obviously that he never knew about their existence because he is the one who made them himself. No, he's saying, I have no saving relationship with you. I never knew you in that sense as one of my own. Now, the question to the reader might be, how can that be? How is that even possible? How could they call Him Lord? Again, Master. They perform religious deeds. They believe that they believe. So how is that possible? Well, look at the second half of verse 23. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Practice lawlessness, no repentance. You understand? No repentance. So not understanding repentance, I say again, is the most grave danger imaginable to those in the church. It's not that misunderstanding repentance outside of the church is any less grave. It is an eternal, eternal danger. It's just that misunderstanding repentance within the church is even more grave. Those outside the church don't know that they don't know. Those inside the church think they know, but they don't. So repentance is a pretty important issue. Now let's get some perspective here just to kind of bring all these pieces together. According to a study done years ago by Ellison Research Team, they conducted a study to find out about Americans and what they believed in public about sin. We have some good news here and we have some bad news. Uh, The good news is 87% of Americans believe in the concept of sin, 87% defined as something that is almost always considered wrong, particularly from a religious or moral perspective. That's their definition. The bad news is that almost no one has a clear idea of what sin really is. A significant majority of the Americans agreed on the following were sins. Adultery, 81% believe that that's a sin. Racism, 74%. Using hard drugs, 65% not saying anything back to a cashier when they give you back too much money, 63%. Having an abortion, 56%. Homosexual activity, uh, 52%. Not reporting income tax, 52% as well. A lesser percentage of Americans agreed that the following acts are also sinful. Uh, Reading or watching pornography, 50%. Gossip, 47%. Swearing, 46%. Sex before marriage, 45%. Homosexual thoughts, 44%. Sexual thoughts about someone you're not married to, 43%. Harming the environment, 41%. That's a sin. Smoking marijuana, 41% as well. Getting drunk, 41%. Not taking care of your body, 35%. And the percentages go down. And there's much more data that I could bring up. But just so you know, for our own purposes... We can make four observations about just these findings before we even get into the text of Scripture. Number one, sin cannot be determined by what people think is sin. God is alone the authority to determine what is and what is not sin. So the ultimate authority for understanding what sin is for all of us this morning, of course, is that it must be in the Bible, not in a poll. Second observation, most people think of sin as what they do, not who they are what they do, not who they are. And the Bible teaches us that we are fallen humanity, not just by the acts that we do, but by the people we are. Most people see sin as acts against other people or themselves and not as an act of rebelliousness and disobedience against God Almighty. Therefore, sin can be seen as a negotiable form of social etiquette, if you will, Again, other observations. This report reminds us that the, this loss of a deeper sense of sin means that many, if not most, in America see themselves as in no need of salvation whatsoever because they have no sin to repent of. And the reason that that report is reported, so vital for us to understand is because repentance, and at its core, has to do with a recognition of sin. You have to recognize that you're sinning and are a sinner otherwise it doesn't make sense to repent. And the understanding that we are sinners and that our sin is an affront to a holy God and that we are personally responsible for our own guilt is imperative. You see, repentance at its very core, again, always begins as an intellectual first comprehension of sin and sinfulness because at its most fundamental level, that's what repentance involves. Repentance involves changing one's mind about sin, in fact, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which comes from meta, meaning after, and noia, to understand, literally, after thought or to change one's mind. And though it's clear that most of our culture is absolutely in no way thinking about sin in that way, they've come to a place of having an intellectual, much less a spiritual or emotional understanding of sin. The terrifying truth to all of this is that many of the, in the church today wouldn't agree that recognizing sin is a vital thing to do. Uh, years and years ago, I'll never forget, there was a report, Kathy Lynn Grossman, USA Today, pretty shocking article, said, has the, na- has the notion of sin been lost? Of course, that gripped me. She says the following, popular evangelist pastor at Lakewood Church in Houston, no, don't know who that is, uh, never mentions sin in his TV sermons or... Best-selling book, Your Best Life Now. I think we know who we're talking about. And then quotes from Larry King interview with this pastor. Again, this is probably 15 years ago. I never thought about it, the pastor said, using the word sinners. I never thought about using the word sinners, but I I probably don't. Most people already know they're doing wrong, and when I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change, end quote. But according to recent polls, the people don't know that they're doing wrong, they have no idea unless they do know, and, they, and they do. you can't know that you can change if you don't have something to change from. Never forget this. One time I was in the prayer room. Uh, a young man was there, and uh, he said, I've got a problem. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong with me. And I said, okay, well, let's start in the very beginning. Uh, you know, what's your sin life like? And he goes, I'm not sure what you mean. And I go, well, have you uh, been with women sexually that are not your wife? He goes, yeah. And I go, well, that's a sin. He goes, it is? True story. <laughs> Shocked. I go, yeah, it's kind of a big one. Uh, so, you know, I, I, so, so uh, as we come to this topic amidst a secular culture that doesn't understand sin, they are to repent of this sin. It's not just the, the world outside, it's the ecclesiastical world within, the culture within the church. Even the church doesn't think it's necessary to repent. But there's one more side of this that I want to assist you in as I set the stage for the message with the time that we have. And that is, it's very vital for more Bible-believing, Bible-expositing environments that we live in to expose what true repentance is than at first blush really are. In other words, people aren't making it clear. That's one of the reasons I want to do this today. There's a very prevalent kind of subculture within the church at large, and I use that with quotation marks at large, that views repentance as a recognition of sin, and I already mentioned that, and a changing of one's mind, which I also mentioned, and that's it that's all. According to this view, biblical repentance is a change of mind or attitude concerning either God, Christ, dead works, or sin. And that's it. Repentance is just that, acknowledging I've done wrong. One seminary seminary professor, not ours, thankfully, puts it this way. Repentance means to change one's mind. It does not mean to change one's life. But is that true? Is that true? I have set the stage to do this for you, set the scene, if you will, this way, because it's very imperative that we come to this message with an appropriate concern and burden for what is happening in the church and understanding the truth regarding this repentance. And the reasons are clear from even the most cursory viewing of Scripture. I want to give you just a little update on this. Preparing for the coming of the Son of God, John the Baptist is recording in his very first words in Scripture, repent for the kingdom of God, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, prophesying by John the Baptist, once he begins his public ministry, his very first utterance as well is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. The Apostle Paul, in his first sermon after the birth of the church took place at Pentecost, presents the murder of Jesus Christ as the over, excuse me, the Apostle Peter presents the Overwhelming evidence of mankind's sinfulness when he says this to the crowd, repent and each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and 3,000 people repented. The Apostle Paul, when standing before King Agrippa, tells him in those Damascus and Jerusalem all throughout the region, he says they should repent and turn to God. So clearly repentance, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, very important not just to our study of this topic, not to even our study that's coming up in the Psalms, which you will see over and over again, but the Christian life. It's imperative to the Christian life that we understand obedience to Christ, eternal life as a whole. But what is it? I don't want to present to you merely a, an academic recounting of what repentance is. I'm going to try hard not to do that. So I want to go to a section of Scripture where we see what I believe is the heart of repentance being lived out in flesh and blood situations because ultimately repentance is not just a matter of mind, it's a matter of heart. And you're gonna see this. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians. That's gonna be our text today 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As we see what most people consider to be the classic passage on repentance, because it's here that we see the great apostle pour out his heart. At Corinth, because they had first poured out their heart in repentance to God. Let me help you before we read the passage, just to kind of keep you up to speed with this book of 2 Corinthians and what's happening in the letter thus far. There were some false teachers that had come into Corinth, and they had infiltrated the church. They wanted to uh, preach another gospel and, and to preach another Jesus. And in order to get their damnable heresies to get entrance into the church, the first thing that they wanted to do was to have Paul be destroyed, to get the apostle Paul out of the way. They would have to destroy his reputation. They would have to destroy his credentials. They would have to destroy Paul's authority. All of those things were going to be under attack. So to do that, they would have to dismantle through vicious lies every conceivable point of what made Paul, Paul. They attacked his integrity. They attacked his spiritual life. They attacked his apostleship. They tried to poison him in every area of his life because they knew that he was the messenger of God and the transmitter of the truth of Christ. And so they had to cut him down at the lowest place. And it wasn't as if they did it in a vacuum. They did it, this character assassination in the confines of the church that he labored for. It wasn't an attack against Paul lodged to a bunch of strangers that were outside of the church. This was a very well-organized, strategically planned effort to crush Paul in front of those all whom he loved. Paul had a very, very personal, deep relationship with those in Corinth, largely because he actually had spent 18 months with them planting the church. He was teaching there. He was discipling them, leading them to Christ. And so Paul knew them. He knew them in and out, and he cared for them, and they were in his heart, he says, But because of the nature of Paul's ministry, he had to leave them in body, but he never left them in spirit. He had to go on and move on from the church, but he was with them all the time. And once he left them, they became like children to themselves, like children whose parents had left the house, resorting back to immoral ways that they had done before Paul had come. And so he wrote them a letter, and this is not 1 Corinthians, but this is a letter that was uninspired by God, somehow lost to us. You've probably heard of it. It's referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, when he says that he wrote to them a letter not to associate with immoral people in the church. So we have basically the teaching of that letter preserved in those words. So Paul was in constant communication. He was writing them all the time, and they wrote to them uh, as well. They wrote to him as well, 1 Corinthians 1, 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, because Paul's heart was with them, and their heart was with Paul, and they wanted to understand what was going on, and he loved them, and and they loved him. And then eventually, because of this disruption, he sends Timothy to find out about the church, about what's really happening in the church, and that's the first time he writes 1 Corinthians, the letter that is inspired, based on what other people are telling him about the health of the church, things that were worse than he thought, and so he sends this letter And so instead of waiting to hear back from them, Timothy, instead of uh, listening and waiting to hear back from Timothy, I should say, Paul goes to Corinth himself because Timothy had Corinth as one of the many stops he was scheduled to make, and Paul just couldn't wait. He said, you know what, I'm just going to go myself. And that's 2 Corinthians. That's the letter that we have here referring to the painful visit of Paul. This is considered the painful visit of Paul. So understand the context. Paul's heartbroken. He's about to visit the, the people who he once uh, returned to Ephesus, and he wrote them what theologians call the severe letter, uh, which was also not inspired and lost to the church. But this letter was very, very strong. He had wrote, written them a harsh letter that Paul refers to in second corinthians chapter 2 verse 4 when he says for out of much affliction and anguish of heart i wrote to you with many tears not so that you would be made sorrowful but that you might know the love i have abundantly for you so the question is if you're with me why was he so torn apart why is the apostle paul so broken Because on top of the sin and the immorality and the problems he addressed in 1 Corinthians, he found that there was a mutiny in the church that had started against him. These false apostles, these so-called super apostles, had come in and begun to tear apart his qualifications, his apostleship, his honesty, his purity, and they questioned his love for the church. And so Paul writes this letter, and it's so severe that after he sent it off, he regretted it. I wish I had never written that. I wish I had never let you even read those words. And so he had to wait until the response, and in that waiting, his heart was breaking. To wait for how they would respond to him tore him apart. This church was so sinful, it was so uh, infected by sinful relationships and leadership, lying about Paul, the, the true one, the one who actually really loved them, unlike them. He speaks so hard to them because he loves them, and yet it seemed as if all was lost. He felt as if he had gone too far. The harsh letter, they, they would hate him all the more, he thought, because of the giving footing to the false teachers, And so then the miraculous happens. The Corinthians receive his letter, and it crushes their heart. It crushes them once they read what he wrote. And they realize that they've done to Paul, and they realize what they've done to the Lord of Paul, and they repent, and they tell Titus who tells Paul. And the reason I told you all of that, I know it's a lot, because it's important for the context of this, because now you can understand the joy Paul has. You can understand the pain and all the different nuances that we see here in Second Corinthians as he writes to them in chapter 7. One more point before I read the Scripture itself. Even though the majority of the dissenters in the church had repented, the great apostle knew that there were still there people who doubted him. There were still those in the church who were wary of him. So he writes in such a way to both, listen, affirm them, affirm those who have repented, and then to win over those who had not yet repented. And because he's done this, the Lord has preserved this letter and he inspired Paul for us to all read lasting repentance, what it really looks like. We have now evidence of what real repentance is. And look with this, Look with me in mind of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read from verses 2 to 13. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 7, Excuse me, verses 2 through 13. Paul says, "'Make room for us in your hearts. "'We wronged no one. "'We corrupted no one. "'We took advantage of no one. "'I do not speak to condemn you, "'for I have said before that you are in our hearts "'to die together and to live together. "'Great is my boldness towards you. "'Great is my boasting on your behalf.' I have been filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the humbled, comfort us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort by which he is comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For, verse 10, godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings forth death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has brought about in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything. You demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be manifested to you In the sight of God. Now, if you were listening, you know we have virtually an encyclopedia here full of insights into what is biblical repentance and a really clear outline by his writing that details for us what is going to be a seven step look at the attitude and qualities of true biblical repentance. This is so vital for us, it's so, so very important. And each one of these elements are so clear, so vivid, so demonstrable that, and measurable that we can both apply them to our lives and to the lives of our brothers and sisters in the church for the purpose of the purity of the church and the glory of God. In other words, what you're seeing here are signs, if you will, signs that are whether or not someone's repentant, whether or not someone's repentance is true or whether or not someone's repentance is false. And Paul grants them to us here in this text. But before we look at all these seven qualities, let's make some general observation from this text that are really undeniable. And it's important that we kind of begin with this context. The word Paul uses here in verse 9 and 10 as repentance is the same word that I mentioned earlier. It's metanoia, which is, again, the basic meaning of changing one's mind. But here we see why most lexicons add this definition, an emotional aspect as well, a lexicon being a dictionary of the Greek language. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines metanoia as, quote, the change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and a sorrow for it. You see the distinction there. Not only a recognition of sin, but a sorrow for it. So repentance in this idea is understood as an intellectual understanding of sin as well as an emotional recognition that includes sorrow. Uh, The lupe, a state of mental pain and anxiety to be overcome with grief. The beginning of repentance. Repentance. So, as we look at this and start to consider this, these are again just observations to think through. Repentance often begins with a sense of shame. Repentance often begins with a sense of shame where we come to see that our sin has degraded us and, more importantly, has taken the image of God in us and spotted and and shamed its glory. And we sense in the very beginning of repentance a shame, a shame of personal distress, disgrace of God and ourselves. We become ashamed. Very important to note. We become ashamed of ourselves. Thus, this this shame then leads to a humbling. You You see in a strange way, once a man or woman begins to feel shame, they begin to see the sin that they've committed clearly, and then it's possible, even in that declaration of sin, for pride to come up and pride arise from them, and to cut them off from the shame by hardening their heart. But true repentance begins to take what is shame and humbles the man, humbles the woman, shuts their mouth, and confesses their sin. The the shame makes them confess that God is right in what he said. Then sorrow and regret fill our hearts, and we begin to long for that which was once pure, once before sin came and destroyed our desire to please God. We regret what we've done to God. This is vital. We regret what we've done to others. We regret what we've done to ourselves. And how we've wasted the privileges given to us and wasted years and years of life. And so sorrow fills the heart. This is the sorrow that Paul talks about in verse 9 of chapter 7, though I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. This was intense enough that it made Paul second-guess himself. This, This was so intense that Paul started to wonder whether he should have even sent the letter. And so it's hard to see that those we love, and you can think of your own life now, um, heartbroken. It's hard to see people that you love heartbroken, even when it's the right thing for them to be heartbroken. Even when you know it's the thing that's going to heal the best, begin the healing, begin the surgery, it still is hard. We can regret even coming to them. We can regret even coming alongside them to confront their sin. I know that. I have felt it myself. I've experienced this. To see people in weeping and gnashing of teeth over what it is that they have done is so difficult. But Paul says once he saw that godly effect, once he saw the fact that they were made sorrowful because of sin, now he could let the regret go and he could be joyful because he saw how God, through Christ, changed the human heart. Biblical change doesn't come as a result of avoiding sorrow. Biblical change comes through embracing the sorrow of a godly man or woman. But it's here that I want to make a second observation. So that's just the first observation. I want to make another observation about this text. Through though it's true, though it's true that the experience and depth of emotion in repentance will differ from person to person. We all have different capacities for feeling what it is that we feel, and will depend on a very large variety of circumstances to kind of dictate that. So it's not just one blanket statement. It is a case-by-case situation. The truth is that there will be some degree of sorrow in repentance. There just must be. That is a part of it. Sorrow isn't the sole barometer of repentance, and this is where it kind of gets tricky. This is where it's a little dicey. In verse 10, Paul says that there's another kind of sorrow. There's another kind of sorrow. It's a sorrow with regret that produces death. This kind of sorrow is not godly sorrow and yet it's sorrow. The sorrow that Paul is speaking of is the sadness of heart that regrets, that is sorry for what it's done, that regrets doing the sin that was exposed and regrets having to be put in the situation of being exposed. That's where that sorrow comes from. It's a sorrow that has regret for something that was lost A grief that comes about because one's missed out on all the world can offer. You've been exposed as the person that you are, and you cry and you weep because you don't want people to see you that way. Worldly sorrow feels bad because worldly sorrow wants more of the world. It would continue in that way. Sinful sorrow causes us to focus more on how hurt we are. Uh, Self-pity, how difficult it is for us, and ultimately it's deadly because it produces a resentment and a bitterness and a hardness of heart. On the outside, it seems like all is sorrowful. It seems like, oh, this is what Paul must be talking about in 2 Corinthians 7, full of tears, full of grief. But on the inside, it is marked by regret that can't have the sin that it wants anymore without the consequences. I'm crying because you're taking away from me that which I want, and I can't have it anymore if I'm to be a Christian. It is resentment. It is resentment of being found out, resentment of not getting away with what you want. One more observation. Observation about this kind of sorrow. One sorrow produced as a result of God's work in the heart, and one is not produced as a result of God's work. The Corinthians, if you look in the text, was made sorrowful. They were made sorrowful according to God. This is the grief that produces repentance. This is, if you will, good grief. Good grief. But the sorrow of the world is not from the Father. 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but are from the world. And the sorrow that comes when one can't get what they want from the world is a part of that as well. This is so vital to understand because true biblical repentance cannot be produced on human terms. True biblical repentance cannot be produced on human terms, nor can the sorrow that comes from biblical repentance. It is God produced. It must be God who's producing that in you. Yes, you're the one crying. Yes, you're the one shaking. But it's God working in you that for his good pleasure. It's like repentance itself, as it says, and we will find out, is from God. When the early church recognized the authenticity of Cornelius, their conversion of Cornelius, they concluded, Acts 11, 18, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. God grants the repentance. Peter uses the exact same expression in, his, in Acts 5:31 when he speaks of Christ as the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior, quote, to grant repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sin. Again, God grants repentance. Paul speaks of the same thing in his letter, second letter to Timothy, where he speaks of the slave of Christ being one who can correct those in opposition to the truth so that they might escape the snare of the devil and that God might grant them repentance. So God grants repentance. God grants the godly sorrow. God grants good grief and the grief that marks it. Even though we're all called to repent, the Bible says, like faith, we are called to exercise a repentance that can only come if God has granted it. Matthew 19, verse 22, the rich young ruler felt remorse. Remember the story. He went away and he was broken because it wasn't what he wanted. He wanted his riches and also to go to eternal heaven because That was not granted by God repentance. That was not granted by God sorrow. It didn't lead him to turn. Judas felt remorse, remember? Judas felt remorse, Matthew 27, 3, but it wasn't the sorrow that God made. It wasn't granted to him because he never repented, because he rejected, he regretted it. He regretted what he had done with the silver coins. He had regretted what he had done to Christ, but he didn't repent. He wept. So thus far, we've seen that True biblical repentance, if you're still with me, acquire, it requires an intellectual comprehension and recognition that sin is sin, for sure, but it requires also an emotional element of contrition that comes from God. But how can you tell on the outside, of course, looking at someone, that this is true biblical repentance or it's not? How can you see if it's supposed to be that way on the inside when it's on the inside? And this leads us to the last area of repentance that is very important important, and required, it's called the volitional aspect, the volitional element. More than a change of mind, more than a change of heart, true repentance requires a change of behavior, a change of behavior. I can know I've done wrong, I can cry about all that I've done wrong, but unless I change my behavior, it's not really repentance. That's why Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines metanoia by saying, quote, it, this kind of repentance, demands a radical conversion, a transformation of nature, a definitive turning from evil, a re- resolute turning to God in total obedience. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question What is repentance unto life? And it answers it in this way Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and appreciation of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience, End quote. So it's more than just a change of mind. It's more than just a determination to live and surrender to Christ. It is the surrendering as well. And the behavior that comes out of that transformation of the will will be seen as fruit of repentance. Fruit of repentance. You've heard that terminology before from John the Baptist. He looked for fruit of repentance, Luke 3.8. This is how the rabbis had always thought of repentance. And so surely Paul understood this is what it should be and look like in the lives of the church, especially in Corinth. In fact, the Jewish concept of repentance had been so well developed that it was said that the rabbis developed what they described as a nine activities related to repentance you don't have to turn there but in isaiah it's interesting where they had taken just one verse isaiah chapter one and in isaiah chapter one verses 16 through 17 we make this remark this is what they had the rabbis thought were the nine activities of repentance first excuse chapter one in isaiah verse 16 and 17. Isaiah 1, 16 says, Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the orphan, plead for the widow. This was their idea and well, of course, established. They look at these signs as this is true repentance. Now, let's look at the seven signs of repentance that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 7 after his part of kind of uh, joyfully uh, rejoicing in the authenticity of their true repentance in 2 Corinthians. and this list, verse 11, we're only going to have enough time to mention them today, and then I'm going to unpack them next time. So this is just kind of an introduction to this idea, and then next Lord's Day here we'll go through this whole list of the going of the, of the mentioned time that he had, or in the time that I have, to mention these qualities. And they are, these are the marks of true repentance, because a godly sorrow produces a true repentance. A godly sorrow produces a true repentance, and a true repentance is a repentance that demonstrates sorrow by its deeds. You want to know if someone's repented? This is how you're going to know, and there's seven of them. The seven deeds are, verse 11, earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and avenging of wrong. Let me give them to you again. We're going to go again. We're going to unpack it uh, fully next week. Earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and avenging of wrong. This is what true repentance looks like in a believer. Because a man or a woman who first repented of their sin and has chosen to follow Christ, continues the entirety of their Christian life to repeat this process of repentance all the time. When I'm counseling people, I will say, if you have repented with a capital R, you continue to repent with a lowercase r for the rest of your life. If the capital R repentance has taken place, then the lowercase r will continue to take place throughout your life, day to day, moment to moment, as you walk with the Lord. The greater repentance sets the stage for the ongoing repentance that is to follow. Some of this information might be new to some. For some of you, you know it very well. But Acts 7 tells us that we must be cautious. Excuse me. Matthew 7 tells us we should be cautious because the people in Jesus' little story who thought they knew him and thought they had actually done good works enough to justify their standing before him— practiced lawlessness. They did not understand that their profession was devoid of true merit because they saw in their life no reason to repent. They had never capital R repented, and therefore the lowercase r never happened at all. I know most of you here, I've known you for years now. There are some new folks here as well, and I'm so glad you're here. But if you have never truly repented in that way, of your sin and unbelief in Jesus Christ, I just invite you, every day is the day to come. Every day is the day to come forth to Jesus in true repentance and be saved. It's the only way that you can change your life, the only way that you can please Him, and the only way to prepare for the life to come. Let's pray. Father, in all sincerity, those words are true. There are none of us here that can peer into the heart of others, We only know ourselves. And even in the knowledge of ourselves, we can be deceived, as is in the story of your son, as he talks about those that profess to love him but have never changed. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we look at this little opportunity to examine repentance, that we would be changed. For those of us who have repented of our sin and unbelief in Jesus Christ, let us look at our lives to note whether or not we do change, we want to change. Though we may fail, though we may go back and forth over and over again like children who refuse to learn, we do see progress. We do see the step by step regret. The confirming of what it is that we've done wrong to you, the knowledge that we have sinned against you as holy God, and the desire to turn from it. But Father, for those who do not know this, who have been raised in the church, perhaps for those who maybe were in a Christian home their whole lives and have been seduced by the thought that they're Christian because they intellectually believe the truth about you and your son and your word, Produce a change, a true change. Grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And may joy upon joy be in their heart. And I pray this for all of us this day. In Christ's name, amen.